Jimmy Johnson, the Cup Series champion on his way to becoming the most decorated driver in history. The Hendrick Motorsports driver shares the mistakes he made early on. I, I did a lot of soul searching. That's been credited with one of the defining moments of your motorsports career. And how he got his big break in racing. And I was the only driver that they had brought up as a potential uh, driver for the seat. Really? Johnson also reflects on controversial decisions that paid off. One columnist called it the greatest move of all time. I think there was a lot of discussion about it um, in, in a negative way. And his impressive record. I've let it in as much as I possibly can. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to start off briefly talking about uh, your life growing up. Your parents raised you and your two brothers in a couple bedroom home in California. I believe you lived in a trailer park for a part of the time. Your father, I think I understand, rose at 4 a.m. five days a week driving a truck. Your mother uh, drove a school bus to help make ends meet. What did your parents teach you about work ethic growing up? Yeah, I mean, we... Uh we loved racing. I grew up in it. My uh, grandparents owned a motorcycle shop in Southern California, and, and so that's where like the motorsports um, thing kind of started for us. But the racing side of it and was really a hobby and for something uh, for the family to do. And we, we would do together and go to the local tracks and ride and um, do well. And that kind of led you know to other opportunities and things kept moving along. But my parents, um, you know, worked so hard to provide. Uh, for us boys, just just as any parent would, and and uh, you know, so thankful for their willingness to not have an amazing home, and, and we did for a period of time until I was probably eight. I uh, lived in a trailer park, and then we upgraded to a couple bedroom home. Thought we were living the high life. Um, you know, we didn't have the nicest stuff, but we had toys, and we were off, uh, you know, doing our thing as a family growing up. You got your first motorcycle, I think, at four years old. How about your earliest riding memory? Yeah, I remember, uh, there's a variety of, of memories, but some of my best ones, um, my dad was a heavy equipment operator and would volunteer his time to build the tracks, um, you know, prep the track at our, our local um, home track that we'd race at. And on Saturdays, we'd go out and my brother, and I, the youngest brother wasn't born yet, but uh, my middle brother, Jarrett, and I would just ride all day and dad would be on the tractor and my mom would be getting the snack bar ready and we'd camp out that night and sit by the campfire and you know, s'mores and hot dogs and burgers and all the thing, all the stuff, and race the next day and then come home. So that was a pretty normal weekend for us. I, I understand now you'll spend hours visualizing the track, even visualizing yourself driving laps, even like lying in bed at night. What exactly do you visualize? I swam in high school and our swim coach had us um, a drill. We'd sit down with a stopwatch and uh, she would pop the, the starting gun and we would memorize our stroke, our turn, and, and back, and see how close we could get. And she really helped me understand uh, the visual aspect of, of sports, and, and I've carried that over into to racing. And, uh, and we don't get a lot of on-track time, and when we show up, you really need to know where you're at. So from uh, taking notes over the years, um, visual aids that we have now with, with film to watch, um, I try to prep myself, and I usually spend time uh, right before I fall asleep in order to kind of put myself to sleep I'll start driving laps at a track and uh, I end up falling asleep and in order to put doing, yourself to sleep yeah, put myself to sleep and uh, I don't know why it works or where I how I ended up here but it's something I do often how about your best racing attribute um, 
you know, there's it's a complicated sport and it's a team sport, which a lot of people may not realize. But um, I grew up in a team environment. Um, I was the young driver being brought up through a system in different organizations that I raced for, and really understood how to work together as a team. And at the end of the day, NASCAR does a very good job of making sure the cars are all very equal. Um, so it boils down to the people and the difference that the people make. And uh, being a good teammate is something I learned at a young age, and I think that's, that's the most important part. How about your weakest, the weakest element of your racing skill? Weakest element would be, uh, you know, at times the, uh, the technical side, um, I, I'm not as sharp in, in, in areas with the chassis. Uh, is, is I would want to be sometimes, where I feel I could help the team when a new rule comes out. And uh, if, I, if I had more engineering knowledge or if I had a degree in engineering, I could help the team get to a, an end result faster. Um, so at times, I, I wish that I, I had a chance to go to school and, and could have um, you know, got a degree in engineering or something to help. But, uh, you know, that's... There's there's a lot of other little things that go on that it's tough to you know draw up at, at the time, but um, you know being able to provide the information for the team is really what my job boils down to. And there are days I leave the track where I leave with my chest pumped up and I feel like I did a great job. And there are other days where you leave and you're like, man, I, I didn't, I, I couldn't help steer them in a direction. And those are the most frustrating days. So the communication. Uh... I feel like I communicate well. Sometimes it's just tough to know what you're feeling. Okay. And there's so many variables on the car that we can adjust to decide if it's a spring or a shock or sway bar, um, weight where the weight is pr uh, positioned on the car fore and aft and side to side. Um, you have tire pressures to concern yourself with. You have roll centers, um, cambers, caster. I mean, there are numerous adjustments to make in the car, um, but really there's one way to get it right. So out of trial and error, you go through a lot of things hoping you get it right. And there's some days you, you never get there. You never hit what the car needs. And those are the days where I'm like, I wish I knew that I needed more caster split or I needed this or that. Those, those, those are the days I'm talking about. What do you think makes a great athlete? Um, I think handling pressure moments. Um, to a certain degree, the physical side, you know, when, when you're looking at sport to sport, um, the athleticism is very similar. They're all there for a reason. Um, I think at the end of the day, what really separates people is how they deal with uh, their emotions and how they handle those clutch situations. And it's just interesting you bring that up. Uh, Homestead, Miami Speedway, the final race of the 2010 season. Denny Hamlin's ahead of you in the point standings by, I think, 15 points. Um, in coming into the race, you said it was going to be the biggest race of your career to date. I was talking to one of your good friends, Noah, and he's, I guess, been with you uh, at a bunch of races yeah. before the race. He said, prior to that race, that's the calmest I've ever seen Jimmy. Why do you think that is? I really believe it's because I didn't have anything to protect. I have gone to Homestead for that final race in years past with a points lead and the fear of screwing up, the fear of dropping the ball, the fear of Waste, you know, but you'd have four consecutive championships coming into that. Yeah, I, I mean, sports psychologists probably uh, hate to hear this and hate to hear me speak, but um, I'm not one that deals with, you know, all this um, half full, glass half full and optimism and, and overlooking the, the true issues. I mean, I, 
I'm a realist, and uh, when I I look at things, I've learned from my mistakes, and I fear my mistakes, and I've used fear through my career to motivate me to get me to where I am. Um, I know that a lot of you know golf guys um, need to visualize the shot and believe and see this thing taking place. My vision looks like uh, you've made this mistake before, you've done this wrong, you've done that wrong. Don't do it again. So I guess we all have our own way to go about it, and going to Homestead this year and, and being with Noah and, and him seeing the, the all five years, you know, what's gone on over those five years, I didn't have anything to lose. And it's the first time I'd been in that position. And uh, it was about doing my job. So I've, I had a lot of confidence in myself and my team to go do our jobs. So I, I, yes, I had pressure, but I don't think I had the pressure that Denny did. And I only know that because I've, I've been in issues. And frankly, I've had really big points leads going into Homestead and have feared everything. You know, worried about a flat tire or caution coming at the wrong time or a pit road penalty or something stupid messing it up. And yet you always remain calm and collected when speaking to the media. Uh, I think it was heading into the race prior to that, the second to the last race of the season, Phoenix, when your crew chief, Chad Knaus, made the decision to switch your pit crew with that of teammate Jeff Gordon. And one columnist called it the greatest move of all time, or one of the greatest moves of all time by the greatest crew chief of all time. Now, you famously had basically no turnover among your pit crew because of that reported sense of loyalty they feel towards you. How do you reconcile the benefits of that move with any impact it might have on team, chemis uh, team chemistry? Well, at the time, um, it took a lot of guts for Chad to make that decision um, at the Texas race, and then at Phoenix, we we had uh, 24 guys, um, you know, on our car. And the way it turned out, it looks brilliant. But at the time, um, you know, it wasn't an ideal situation. And I think there was a lot of discussion about it, um, in, in a negative way, because it was uncommon and, and not normal to see the 48 team have to make it, an adjustment like that. So, uh, looking at it, when it's all said and done. It, uh, it proved to the world what we've been preaching for a long time and that we are one team. Um, and, and especially when you have the two cars housed in one shop where the 24 and 48 were, it really is one team building two cars. And, and we but, I mean, these guys couldn't have been thrilled. They've been with you for championships and that oh, no, deprived it, them it, of... It wasn't easy, but it happens in pro sports all the time. People get benched. And it is not easy for the coach or crew chief to make that decision, and it is not easy for the player, and it hurts. But uh, if you look closely, when we went to Homestead, we had both groups on that stage celebrating. Um, it's not that we didn't appreciate or respect what they did. Sure. We had to do what we had to do to win the championship. So uh, it wasn't easy, and it was painful, and it wasn't easy when we got back home. Some guys said, hey, I didn't like that, and, and have left. But uh, they know that, that I and Chad respect what they have done to get the team to that point, and that's why they shared and everything. What do you most respect about Chad Knauss's talent? Um, for a man that doesn't have a degree, I've just never seen someone so brilliant. Um, uh, no formal degree, has learned on his own and uh, has worked with engineers and is one of the strongest engineers we have on campus but doesn't have a degree. So uh, his ability to commit to, to the sport and, uh, and it's something that he loves to do. I don't think it's a job to him. It's what he loves and that's why he is able to dedicate the time he does to it. Late 2005, uh, you end up 
just narrowly missing winning a championship, similar to what happened in 2004 and 2003. So no championships up to that point. I know you've told the story uh, many times prior, but uh, you and Chad just were not getting along, I guess, at that point. You go into a meeting with owner Rick Hendrick, and what happens? Well, Rick, uh, Rick knew we were acting like kids and was going to treat us like kids. Um, so he made a, a, a very bold statement with some milk and cookies to help us realize how we were acting. And, uh, On the Mickey Mouse plates. Mickey Mouse plates. And then, you know, had us hash out what, uh, what, our, what our issues were. And, and what were they? At the end of the day, what we realized is there were a lot of petty things that we were frustrated with each other about. And uh, the fact that we weren't communicating and talking about those small issues, they, they added up to be a big issue. And with not winning the championship and coming up short, um, the frustration was at all time high. And we had a chance to finally download and, and just get that off of our chests. And when we did that, there was clarity. And it was like, wow, okay, I feel better. You know, he yelled at me, I yelled at him. Rick sat there and watched and probably got a good laugh out of all the little petty things we're yelling about. And at the end of the day, we realized they were petty and that we shared um, you know, a great respect for one another and a common goal of trying to be a champion. And uh, once we got that off our chest, we, we had the clarity and we knew that we needed to continue communicating. Uh, and, and not just at track about what the car's doing, but you know, if something gets under your skin, especially with the spouse, I mean, you, you have to vent, you have to get those things off your chest. And just like any other relationship, if you, if you hold them in, eventually you're gonna blow up. And that's where we both were, and we blew up in 05. And I think I read somewhere, and you said this kind of in jest, but that you've worked harder at your relationship with Chad than oh, yeah. you have with your wife. I want to take you back to when you were 19 years old, the Baja 1000, uh, 22 or more hours it takes to complete the race. Set the scene and explain what happened. Yeah, that particular year, the race winner finished in 26 hours. Um, I was early morning hours hoping the sun would come up, uh, needing the sun to come up to keep me awake. And I fell asleep and crashed. And uh, it took a long time for my crew to find me. And which was not just any crash, though, right? It, I was in the mountains, and when, when I went off the road, I knew uh, the potential for a, a really bad situation was there. So the fear running through my veins, um, midair, tumbling in the air, wondering when I'm going to hit the ground and how far I'm going to fall. Uh, it, was, it, it was a moment I hope to never go through again. And luckily for me, it was just a, a ravine, and we tumbled down to the bottom of it. And uh, no one was seriously injured, although I thought at the time my, my co-rider was, was badly injured. Um, he was just unconscious and wheezing, fortunately. <laughs> but uh, once he came to and we got out of the truck and spent some time there, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of soul searching about how I raced then. And I, I learned a lot sitting in that desert all those hours. And waiting. you credit, it was I think 20 hours before the rescue team found you. You credit that or that's been credited with one of the defining moments of your motor sports career. What is it that you thought about that really makes that so significant? I was just young and dumb and uh, wasn't afraid to stand on the gas. Didn't care if, if I crashed. Um, you know, and, and I needed some of that flash to be recognized and maybe I fell into, a, into that a little much. Um, that, that particular year that it was 95, that final race was you know, the, the anchor moment. But before that, I'd crashed a bunch, made a lot of mistakes. And uh, my career was kind of going in a, in a bad direction because of all the mistakes. I was kind of a, 
viewed at as a reckless driver and, and maybe a driver that an owner wouldn't want in his equipment because you're always having to fix it. And uh, 95, it changed me. And um, I, in dirt terms, when you flip and get upside down, it, it happens pretty often in the dirt. And I still had three years of racing after that uh, on the dirt, and I never got upside down again, which in the off-road and, and, and dirt world in general, it's a pretty big statement. So it, it changed me, and then it helped me prepare and get ready for uh, a cup career and long races. Um, I, I, before the desert racing, I raced in the stadiums, and there were short bursts, fast little races. Um, then I went to endurance racing with the, the Baja 1000. I wasn't ready for that. Cup racing and nationwide is a form of endurance racing. It's a four-hour race. So I learned a lot and matured a lot, and it was needed. 24 years old, Bush Series race at Watkins Glen. You crashed so violently that many spectators thought you may be dead. Fortunately, you end up coming out just fine. Uh, but your uh, close, late friend, Blaze Alexander, in a different race, a different accident, was not so lucky. I would imagine that causes anybody to just think about the risk involved with racing. But what impact did that accident have on you? Um, you know, for me, the Glen, there's, there's two moments that uh, scare me. One's that ball, 1000. The other one is the Watkins Glen race where the brakes went out. And uh, I was just fortunate to have a soft wall, um, a series of soft walls stop my car. Um, you know, Blaze was one of five drivers uh, that we lost in a 12-month, 16-month period of time. And, uh, you know, Adam Petty I knew well, Blaze Alexander. Um, we lost Kenny Irwin, which I didn't know all that well, but I knew Tony Roper very well. And then Earnhardt, of course, I knew who he was, but I, I didn't know him. So to watch three guys that I knew well pass, um, it, it rocked me, you know. And uh, not only me, but I think all of motorsports, and especially when Dale passed, we, we started to make a lot of changes at that point. But as a driver, you know, going through that stretch, watching friends you know, leave you, um, it, it rocked me, it rocked everybody. And uh, just thankful that we've ended up where we are today with all the safer barriers and head and neck restraints and seats and all that we have. Two years after the Baja 1000 crash, you end up moving into moving cross country into the living room of a veteran NASCAR driver. What were you doing at the time to really try and get a ride? I knew like actors and actresses flee or you know, fl go out to uh, Hollywood to find their careers and try to be recognized. Charlotte was is that for NASCAR. And people may not realize they it's don't like realize that. it, but if you want to be seen and and meet folks, you've got to come to Charlotte. And uh, I, that's what I did. I packed my bags and, and moved to North Carolina. Hornaday was nice enough to let me uh, steal a couch, and uh, was just back here networking. I didn't have a ride on the asphalt at all. I was still racing in the dirt. But, business cards, uh, handshakes, that Business sort of cards, stuff. every business card I got, I would write a letter and send it off to them and knew the lunch spots where the teams would go and eat and show up early and you know sit around and wait for guys to come in and talk and just networking. And that's, that's the one tool that I, that's the only tool I had was, was networking and I had to take advantage of it. Uh, 2000 season during a driver's meeting prior to a nationwide race at Michigan International Speedway, you I guess bump into Jeff Gordon, you ask him for advice. What did you speak about during the conversation and explain the significance of it? Yeah, the team that I had raced for for so long um, through off-road uh, and then ASA and then nationwide, 
was uh, running sponsor troubles and they weren't sure they could come back the following year. And when that word made it out, I had opportunities coming to me and it involved leaving Chevrolet. And I'd raced for Chevy my whole career. They'd been very helpful in getting me to where I was and I had a hard time with, with that. And, uh, and also leaving the Herzogs. So when I saw Jeff, he, at one point in his career, he had to leave Ford and Bill Davis to go to Rick Hendrick and Chevrolet. And I felt like he had some, some point of view that, that he could share with me. And Problem it's was, Jeff Gordon. And it's too. Jeff Gordon. I didn't know him. So I run into him at this driver's meeting, ask him if he had a couple minutes and I could ask him some questions and he was nice enough to say yes. And uh, I went through my spiel. He listened, gave me some advice. And then at that point said that they're considering starting a fourth team at Hendrick Motorsports and they just had a meeting on it, and I was the only driver that they had brought up as a potential uh, driver for the seat. Really? And I'm in my rookie year of Nationwide. The last thing on my mind was Cup. I was just worried about keeping a job in, in truck or Nationwide. I was nowhere ready for Cup at that point. And um, things started moving and shaking, and, and a lot of help behind the scenes that I didn't know of was taking place with Rick's late son, Ricky Hendrick. And uh, Ricky was my champion behind the scenes, making stuff happen. and. We got, we got the contract put together and the rest is history. That's interesting. They thought you were ready, but you yourself didn't think you were ready at, at the time. What do you think you've most learned from Jeff Gordon over the years, especially early on? Um, man, there's so much. Uh, there's just, there's just a, a flow of our sport on track, off. Um, you know, being able to, uh, to really look at this thing as a marathon and not a sprint race. Um, from the race, any particular race to the season, you know, it's so long and, and time consuming and grueling. Um, patience has been, you know, something that kind of falls into that category as well. Um, and, and then the team atmosphere. I mean, Jeff is a great team leader and, and does a great job here at Hendrick Motorsports, um, you know, keeping everybody pulling in the same direction. And uh, you know, so I'd, I'd kind of say those things. You've won five consecutive championships. He's won four championships. Explain how the relationships evolved with Jeff over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I went from being the kid, so happy to have the opportunity and you know, looking to him, hey, help, you know, how do I go fast? What do I do? Just what, excited to talk so, to him. Yeah, so excited to talk to him and learn from him to uh, being in a position to where I was helping he and his team out. Um, and then being in a position now where, you know, at times he looks to me for advice. So it's been a weird role reversal, um, to say the least. But I still look at him as Jeff. I mean, he's a guy that I idolized when I was a kid growing up. I had two um, die-cast cars as a kid. One was his and one was Dale Earnhardt. So um, he's still that Jeff Gordon in my eyes, so it's pretty cool. Which makes it all the more remarkable, and I think people do fail to recognize the significance of the streak. I mean, to put this in context with other sports, it's like when the Yankees won five world championships in a row, when the Montreal Canadiens won five Stanley Cups in a row, when Michael Schumacher won the five Formula One titles, the Celtics with the eight NBA titles, or you know, UCLA Bruins with the seven uh, NCAA titles. I know you've said, you've achieved and surpassed all your personal goals, but what about your professional goals now? What would they be? Um, I've crossed a lot off the list. Uh, for me, it, it, there's more, it's more today about um, doing my job. I know when I leave the track, when I've done a good job. 
I know when, uh, and sometimes it's a victory, sometimes it's fifth, sometimes it's tenth. There, there is a feeling there that I had to recognize and follow when I was very young. Um, I did not have this type of success growing up and coming up through the ranks. There was always something more about racing than just the trophy. The criticism, it seems absurd to me just as somebody with limited knowledge of NASCAR and the sport, vanilla. That's a word that rarely ever even heard used, but it's a word that uh, those in the media, writers in particular, have used towards you. And I, I was reading some stories where they'll outright say that Jimmy Johnson's boring and that's why some people boo him on the track. How much truth is there to what some of those in the media is saying? And how much is it just kind of progressed by people in the media looking for a story? Yeah, I think fortunately we're, we're over all of that. Um, you know, it's, you can't, I can't control the interaction people have with me via television. You know, and it's tough because I'm there doing a job. Um, obligations, I have stuff to worry about, things to do. Um, so, you know, it, it, in the beginning it was like, wow, you know, I, that's, that's not right. But at the end of the day, I can't control what people um, think as far as my personality. If, if I meet someone and they have negative things to say about me then, and, and I've had a chance to get to know someone, that I'll take seriously. But the, the other side of it, I mean, for, uh, for watching me do a driver interview and forming opinions based on that, that's just, it's just tough to do and, and not necessarily fair. So uh, I'm glad that's all behind now. And, uh, you know, we'll find something else. I, the other thing too, when, when uh, you're experiencing success, I, I feel that it's tough for everyone to jump on board and, and kind of put a positive spin on things. So there's always that, that percentage out there that wants to try to you know, take a different approach or knock you down some. So it, it comes with the territory. And people may forget that when Cale Yarborough won the three consecutive championships, the fans' mantra then was ABC, anybody but Cale. But the two things that just seem ridiculous. Not, not just in racing. I mean, you talk about all sports. Um, when there is a streak, the only one happy is that particular fan base and everyone else is mad. So, uh, you know, the king before me, uh, I firsthand watched Earnhardt and a huge group of people not into Earnhardt. Gordon, you know, and then it all changes as the success ta you know, tapers away, all of a sudden you're loved again. So it's a cycle that takes place in, in NASCAR, in football, baseball, basketball. It's just, it's just how it is. Right, and as if breaking records and making history can be anything but great for the sport. The one thing that just seemed surprising that I read in some stories was it almost seemed as if uh, those in the media were suggesting you would be better liked if you were um, less intelligent and like were screwing up in your personal life as opposed to commending you for being what's somewhat of a rarity in sports, a role model. Does that part of it ever get to you? Um, I you know, all that stuff was kind of going on at the same time um, early in my career. And initially, sure, it, it, you know, you're, when you're getting started, you're worried about every blog, every article. Every, at this point, I, I, don't, I don't really engage and read any of our media or pay attention really? to anything. I know what I'm doing. I know how hard I work. I know the effort I put in. And again, if somebody knows me on a personal level and has hasn't had a good exchange or good experience, I'll take note of that. But it's impossible through a camera to really know someone. So I've, I've moved on from it. Uh, tell me about being a new father, the best part. Um, seeing that smile. You know, if you walk over to the crib and she's just waking up, that smile, um, 
Evie has an amazing smile, and I love to see it. So that's, that's the best part. And I understand even with as crazy of a travel schedule as you have, no nanny. No, we, we, we don't have uh, an official nanny. Grandma comes on the road with us when we're uh, traveling some vacations. Um, Shani's mom does. So we, we have her, and then uh, we have a babysitter a couple hours during the day. But, uh, you know, we're, we're in the trenches right now, really doing the majority of it, and really wouldn't want it any other way. Um, I'm sure it gets more complicated with child two and three, but um, as of right now, and, and we're just coming off the off season, so maybe it'll change as we get into the, the meat of the season, but uh, we've been having a blast with it. Do you really get car sick when you're not driving? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Why? Um, and what will happen? Eventually get sick, sick. But uh, to me, it's, yes, the windy roads get me, but it's more of the, the on and off the gas and brake that does something in my head and makes me nauseous. So if I'm not driving and controlling that aspect of the car, it's very easy for me to get nauseous. Explain what the couple shuffle is. Oh, that's when uh, you're, you're with your spouse and you're out. And it's, if you, if you want to leave a party, an event, whatever it is, as soon as you say goodbye, now you're committed to a long list of goodbyes to people on top of the fact that someone will usually talk you into staying. So if it's go time and you're leaving, you just kind of excuse yourself to the bathroom, you know, maybe my wife goes first and then I follow, and really we're to the front door and we're out and we're gone and we do the couple shuffle. Tell me about the barbecue fish tacos. Um, fish tacos, probably the best thing ever invented. And uh, you're pretty good at them. I can, I can work up some fish tacos. Growing up in San Diego, um, I crave Mexican food on a regular basis and uh, from fish tacos to a variety of things. That, Get, uh, get the grill fired up and from shrimp, fish, whatever it is, get it, get it grilled up. And, and last question, uh, what's your man cave look like? Uh, just created a big space of, uh, you know, I've collected so many things along the way. Um, different memories, photos, uh, fire suits, helmets, uh, small car collection of uh, stuff that I've raced that, that you know, has Mean, meaning to me in, in different parts of my career, some other fun cars to drive. Um, in the front of it, I built kind of an entertaining area where I have an old school bar that uh, has been assembled there and can kind of have some friends over and, and host a poker night or play, play pool or something like that and hang out. So it's been, uh, it's been a fun space. I don't, I'm not there enough um, to really utilize it and enjoy it, but uh, it's fun to take a trip down memory lane when I walk in it. Really a pleasure, sir. Yeah, you got it. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.